Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Each week, we explore a biblical passage or topic, offering insight and application and seeking to point us to hope and direction for our lives. We also have some interactive questions for each podcast for individual reflection or for small groups. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Today, we're going to continue to look at Bible stories of characters who appear together or are biblically famous together. First, it was Martha and Mary and Jesus. Then we looked at David and Nabal and Abigail. And now, this week, we shall see David and Michael, his first wife, and the long story they share. And we will also pay close attention to the concept of honor and shame and see how that plays into our story. With all of this helping us then as an introduction of sorts to our upcoming series on the parable of the prodigal son. As we pointed out last week, much of the Bible's events occur in the Middle East, thinking of geography. Uh, This means the stories are embedded within an Eastern culture where honor and shame concepts play a significant role. To understand these stories then, it's to our advantage to have some basic understanding of the culture that they occur in. Honor-shame cultures are those where there's a strong sense of community relationships and the importance of being in good standing within your corporate community context. We in the West typically see things in a different context with more of a rule of law emphasis and a guilt-innocence framework. To us, guilt comes when we break a standard or a law or by we do something by way of a wrong action, and this leaves us with a sense of inner guilt stemming from our conscious awareness of right and wrong. And after doing that, which we know is wrong, we have internal guilt. The perception is individualistic. It's on what I did. But with an honor-shame framework, my wrong action becomes shameful only when others are aware of it, and it then brings dishonor to my community, which may be my family, uh, my extended family, or village. I have fallen out of favor within my community, and I myself am now tainted and soiled not just my action, but myself as a person. And this is more collective or corporate, not individual. So for one to have honor is very important in these settings, and and much effort is given to avoid giving insult or dishonoring others or putting ourselves in a state of having shame. Now, these differences are not the result of one framework, one way of looking at things being right or superior uh, to the other. In fact, they both have much biblical merit. They simply are differences, but significant enough to be noted in seeking to understand biblical stories. Right from the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, we see how Adam and Eve sensed guilt, shame, and fear, all from the same action of eating the fruit from the, uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 3-7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. This happened right after they ate the fruit. They knew they had guilt. They knew they had done wrong and had broken a standard. And then they tried to fix it 
by sowing fig leaves. The next verse says, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now we see shame. They saw they were fundamentally tainted. Something was wrong with them, and they need to hide. And verse 10 Then when God calls out Adam, Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. And there we see fear. So we see guilt, shame, fear, as they were now knowingly on the wrong side of God's holiness and sovereignty, and there were consequences coming. So they had fear. So you can see then there's guilt, there's shame, and there's fear. They're all part of our human experience. Westerners, we do understand shame, and Easterners definitely do understand guilt. It's just that as cultures, one over the other has taken on a place of emphasis. Now, we can note this in the story of Cain, or we can see an example of this early on in Cain in Genesis chapter 4. We know that they were, he and his brother were to bring sacrifices to the Lord. And verse 4 says, Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. He honored that. And, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance So we see that right here, Cain's countenance falls. You could see his very expression of face as this was a real strong emotion because Cain, in his eyes, was dishonored by God. God rejected his offering, which was his best efforts. And the fact that Cain has disrespected disrespected, uh, God's condition of how one was to approach him, uh, he's missed that. And so instead of coming with an innocent substitute, which we know is really an upcoming picture of Jesus Christ and what is needed for the salvation of humanity, uh, Cain was coming on the basis of his works and his doing. And so Cain felt dishonored. It was perceived. It wasn't real. Now, the emotion of this perceived dishonor led him to a violent explosion of murderous, self-righteous sin. And afterwards, he and his wife were sent away as fugitives, which is the response shown to the one who has fallen into a state of dishonor, is to exclude them and send them away, to remove shame from the rest of the community left behind. So Cain thought he was dishonored when in fact he's the one who had greatly dishonored God, and then he dishonored Abel, obviously by killing him, and therefore his entire community. It's important to realize that not all honor-shame perceptions are grounded in spiritual realities. Well, this brings us to our story for this week, which will begin in 1 Samuel 18. But our story this time is actually going to have two different stories, two strands that will merge together. One story is loaded with honor and shame components, while the other is about personal worship of the Lord and should be a source of encouragement to us all. The main story then is about David and his first wife, Michael. The other story that's going to intersect with it is about the Ark of the Covenant. So you ready to see how this works? First, we need to do a little background about the Ark of the Covenant. When Israel came through the Red Sea, escaping the Egyptians, uh, who they had enslaved them for over 400 years, they were given instruction by God to build a tabernacle. This was a large tent-like structure that was the center. It was to be the center of their worship, and it was portable enough so they could carry it around with them in the wilderness. The most significant item in that tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. 
This was a immaculate golden overlaid box, and they had three important items to put in it. Uh, the pieces of the broken Ten Commandments, and Aaron's rod that miraculously had budded in their contest with Pharaoh, and a golden pot of manna. And these were all big parts of the nation's history, and they were all displaying God's uh, supernatural provision for them. And the lid of the ark was called the mercy seat, where the high priest would sprinkle sacrificial blood once a year for the sins of the nation. And the ark was the place then representing the very presence of the Lord in their midst. And from that ark, the Lord's Shekinah glory, this, this, this supernatural cloud and glory, lit up the night of the Israelites in the wilderness, and it guided them in the day. This then means that God withdrew his presence from free association with sinful humanity to dwell behind a curtain in this tabernacle to where he would be approached via ritual once a year on the Day of Atonement. And access to God was now for the priests, and you had to go through a priest. And this tabernacle, which is famous and we see over and over, uh, became called the Tabernacle of Moses. And that's the place where the priests perform their daily priestly duties prescribed by the law and their system of Jewish priestly sacrifices. And all of this continued from the day of Moses until the death of Christ. Only later it occurred in a fixed structure, which was the temple. But the tabernacle comes before the temple or until the temple was built. Yet we see that God's heart, though, longed for the freedom for people to have personal relationship with him, for God to have personal relationship with all of his children, the the Jews uh, of his covenant people. Um, Open access to him, direct relationship with him, direct access to him, not through priests, not through the sacrifices anymore. And for a brief period of time, for a little while, he gave Israel an inkling of his ultimate plan and he that he had prepared for them this direct access and worship is what one of our stories this week is about incidentally as the uh, the time of our story is, is the time of samuel this is right before the advent of king saul and and the philistines had conquered the ark had taken it from israel and had taken it and removed it from the tabernacle of moses and they kept it in their land for a while But eventually they returned it because it was nothing but bad luck for them as God did a lot of almost humorous things. So now the ark is back in Israel, but they haven't relocated it to the tabernacle of Moses yet. It has actually spent 20 years in a different location in Israel. So to review, we have the tabernacle of Moses. That's one location in Israel where the priests were functioning because there's no temple yet. And the ark of the covenant is in a different location in Israel. And now we can get to our main story. We find ourselves this time, at this time that the ark was separated from the tabernacle. We see King Saul of Israel is declining in popularity and had fallen into dishonor with the spiritual leader of the time, the powerful prophet Samuel. So Saul's declining, but on the other hand, a young man named David is rising in honor and fame while Saul is losing his honor. This was largely helped by a courageous victory over the giant Goliath that David had. And so Saul definitely feels the kingdom is slipping away from him. And he is growing in his jealousy and his wrath toward David. <clears throat> so in 2 Samuel 18, he has an idea. In 2 Samuel 18, 17 through 29, this little uh, uh, pericope, the story, uh, he, he's going to give his daughter Michael, his daughter Michael, who's young and David's age, to David in marriage. 
And David expresses how he's honored, saying that he's a lightly esteemed man and it's, he's very humble to be the king's son-in-law. But Saul has a plan. He says, hey, David, no dowry, nothing financial you'll need to give. All I want is a hundred Philistine foreskins. The Philistines were their most prominent enemy at the time. And so David says, you got it. But Saul is convinced David will perish. That This will be the end of him and that will solve his problems. So David says, okay, and he returns with 200 foreskins, lays them out in the sun, and they count them up. I guess they not only had bean counters in that day, but, well, never mind. So Saul is acting very happy. Ah, this is nice. But he knows inwardly, the Bible says, that the Lord is with David. And David became his enemy continually, 2 Samuel 18 tells us. Now, what's wrong with that picture? Saul knows the Lord is with David, and therefore David becomes his enemy? Saul is in the wrong state of mind. He's extremely self-oriented. At the young, also at the beginning rather, and at the end of the story, we just went, we're told in 2 Samuel 18, uh, the text begins and ends, the first and the last verse there, how Michael loved David. So she had a very strong, youthful love for David, who was her, his, uh, her heart's desire and her first husband. The next chapter, 1 Samuel 19, 8-17, another story. This one is how Michael now saves David's life. Because first, Saul actually tries to kill David by hurling a javelin spear at him while he was playing the harp. But he missed. So Saul sent messengers to David's house to kill him in the morning. He's the king. He can do that, apparently. Michael, the daughter, becomes aware of the plot, and she tells her husband David. And she helps him escape out the window and then buys him more time by making it look like there was, he was in their bed uh, and he was sick. And she could even use goat's hair to put on his head. Fin uh, fake head. Finally, the, the messengers discover that it's really not David, that he's actually long gone and has escaped. And Saul is distressed with his daughter and he's angered. And he sees what she did as not having loyalty to him and dishonoring him. And so... This then begins the story of David being on the run. Actually, for years, he's running from Saul. David was anointed by Samuel to be the next king, but it, was having, it would have to be on the Lord's timing, and it wasn't yet at the time. Now, the hero of the story here in 1 Samuel 19 is Michael. As she helps her husband escape, and she shows honor and loyalty to her husband, and she shows courage, which is a good thing here. Well, some years go by, and David is still on the run, seeking to be escaping from Saul. He's still fighting Philistines, gaining in reputation and honor. Until we get to 1 Samuel 25 in our story last week, where David runs into Nabal and Abigail. And we know that story where Nabal again dishonors David, insults him, and David is now rising up against him with even some extreme, uh, you know, in this honor-shame culture, even he was maybe going too far. Uh, the whole story works out. Abigail saves the day, and eventually then David takes on Abigail at the end of that story as a wife as well as another woman. Why is he doing that? Well, the last verse of 1 Samuel 25 tells us, But Saul had given Michael his daughter, David's wife, to Pelti, the son of Laish, who was from Galam. In other words, after Michael helped David escape, 
a way of shaming Michael as Paul gave her to another man to be married. And this is also a way of shaming David because Saul's the king and he can do this. And where are you, David? You're on the run and you're not here to defend your wife. So Saul does this ultimate act of shaming. And that's why David really, in his mind, didn't have a wife and he took on Abigail and then this other woman. But in 2 Samuel 3, 1 through 5, it's really interesting because he doesn't stop there. He takes on a few more wives. Actually, four more wives are mentioned in that passage. And all six women give David a son. So he's got six wives and six sons. And then 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 13 through 16, he is now going to be reunited to Michael, his first wife, which now becomes seven wives. She had been with him for, for, uh, for, for a few years, and then she was taken away. Um, or excuse me, Michael was taken away and given to another man, and she was with him for a few years. And when she's taken away from him, this man, he follows after her. He's grieved that they're taking his wife away. He's following, uh, even shedding tears. Now, we have no record of her shedding tears, but he did. Whatever her feelings were for Peltiel, the man, um, she had to leave him behind and now return to her first husband, the love of her young life, I'm sure, whom she has long recovered from, as that's difficult as it is. In fact, if you've carried a torch for someone, you know how hard this can be. There's the breakup, whatever caused it, and there's no more contact, and your heart broke, and you go through this anguish and sorrow until you finally get them out of your system. And here's Michael. She's been wronged by her father. And after adjusting, taken now from the next husband, this is not easy. She's just being played like a chess piece. And she has to process all this. Plus, her husband now behind is grieving, and she's going to David, who has already got six other wives. Is this just a political ploy? Why is David calling for her? Why is he showing this interest in her? As David had arranged for this, as he has a, was about to become king, and he has Michael brought to him. Well, Second Samuel 5, David indeed becomes king. We don't read anymore exactly what happened there, but uh, David becomes king, and he makes Jerusalem the capital. Remember, this is before the temple, but now Jerusalem is growing in significance as the capital. It is uh, the city of David. Um, we read in Second Samuel 5, 13 through 15, at the end of that chapter, that David has taken on more wives. He has takes on more wives and concubines, plural, and then it lists children. There's 11 more children. So, so far we see seven named wives, plus at least two more, and 17 named children, plus concubines, and this would all have been done in about a 10-year time span. So he's busy. Well, now our two stories merge in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We see that David desires to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, the new capital, and to be there where he is. So, he is going to make what might be a controversial decision to move the ark from where it was to the tent that he set up called the Tabernacle of David. He has set up a place for the ark. Moving the ark, though, that's one of the reasons why they left it where it was, is it's dangerous. It's a very holy and sacred item, and it was the sacred object that God had very specific instructions and parameters that had to be kept. So, for example, indeed, while they were carefully transporting it, the ark was on a cart, 
and the oxen stumbled, and the ark wobbled or teetered a little bit, and a man named Uzzah put out his hand to steady it, and boom, he was dead, because he touched the ark in a not proper or according to procedure way. Now that's the holiness of God maintaining his, his item, or showing his holiness and showing the sacredness of this. And so with that, David decides to stop the transporting right there and places it in a very nearby house of a man named Obed-Edom, who happens to be a Gentile. <clears throat> Second Samuel chapter 6, and uh, verses 9 through 12, David, though, realizes some good news. God is not angered by the ark being moved out of the, out, you know, on, to be uh, not go to the tabernacle of Moses, but instead to Jerusalem in the tabernacle of David. That's not the problem. Because he could see that Obed-Edom, where the ark was, he had been greatly blessed. He had been blessed during this time that the ark was there, showing that God was favoring this. David, um, it says uh, in 2 Samuel 6, 9, that the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the, Git, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. He moves it now with gladness. This is awesome for us to see this because David is not a perfect man. We see him at the moment with at least nine wives. One, by the way, was a Canaanite, a Gentile, plus concubines and at least 17 kids. We know from the whole story of David in the future, there will be some prolific failures as well in his life. But we also see that this man, David, has a heart for the Lord. He's a man after God's own heart. God himself tells us that. And he has a desire for Jehovah God. He knew Jehovah in a personal way. He's the man who wrote many of the Psalms that reflect such intense relationship between God and David. So David's desire was a spiritual desire for the ark to be in Jerusalem, and it's approved by God, and David is pumped and excited. In 2 Samuel 6, then, verses 14 and 15, it says, Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, so he's not even in his full clothing, and David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a trumpet. They are offering sacrifices, and the verse I failed to read in between there, verse 13, as they went. They'd go so far, offer sacrifices. Then they'd go further, offer sacrifices. And they were excited, and they were pumped, and they were dancing and shouting. There was music, there was joy, spontaneous worship involving their whole body and music, etc. And the ark is back. It's coming to Jerusalem. It has never been there. It's going to be in the tabernacle of David. And God says, yes, that's good. That's okay. And so 2 Samuel chapter 6, this, this, this uh, scene is excitement as they enter Jerusalem. And in verse 16, now our two stories intersect because we see Michael, who is not part of this uh, entourage, but she's now observing from her window. As the ark came into the city of David, Michael and she's identified as Saul's daughter. 
not David's wife, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. She sees this as all before the Lord. Even the Bible tells us this is as on to the Lord. But she has a judgmental spirit, no comprehension of the joy that's going on, the spontaneous worship, the freedom, and the ark being going to now allow them to have free and direct access without priestliness, uh, sacrifices, or veils. She's too bound, I think, here by honor and shame, traditions, and there's no sudden inner compulsions here. They're usually not allowed in that kind of thinking. So David gathers all the people of Israel together. Second Chronicles 29, 25-26, you can read that, a, a parallel account of all of the food and the dancing and the music and how the priests, uh, you know, the, uh, some of the priests were arranging some of this uh, worship. There's joy, there's singing, it's spontaneous, it's, it's awesome, there's public worship and zeal. And then David gives every man and every woman some bread and some meat and some raisins, and they can all go to their own homes for more worship. And David goes to his house in 2 Samuel 6.20, and let me tell you, talk about a buzzkill. He goes and returns to, to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. You're shameless. This is all inappropriate. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. And therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And so we see this confrontation, and she just says, David, you are shameful, and you are bringing shame, and she sees things in this lens. David says, no, I'm rejoicing and doing this as unto the Lord, and I'm not going to stop. She's bound by honor, shame so much, she misses the spiritual dynamic and joy. And then ends up, she's actually double shamed, because for a woman in that day to be barren was unfortunately a sign of being dishonored or of having shame as well so she remains there in that state the story is sad for michael but our two stories then merge here we see as the ark of jerusalem uh, the ark rather of the covenant is moved to jerusalem this then allows free access to the presence of God available to everyone. It's not part of the Moses tabernacle and the priests and the veil and the whole thing. It's for temporarily, it's there, it's available. And as a result, David is now the one with honor, not Michael, as he is so thrilled. The source of David's honor, actually all his life, is his passion and desire for the Lord. And the two stories converge. David is held in honor. He's the one with honor. Michael is not. Further, there was, again, this, this tabernacle, this worship, allows this free access with no veil separating the people, and they have direct access. Many of the Psalms actually were written in this tabernacle of David, right during this time. 
This new reality of worship sparked a different type of worship than what typically occurred in Moses' tabernacle. So, for example, we can read in Psalm 27, 6, David says, Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. There is sacrifices of joy and praises. Psalm 47, 1, Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of triumph taken from this time period that was written clap your hands and shout and then psalm 134 lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the lord the lord who made heaven and earth bless you from zion lift up your hands and then psalm 117 uh we already saw rather in in second samuel 6 they're dancing and there's joy psalm 149 3 also says let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. They had glorious fellowship in God's presence here over the time that the, the next uh, several years here before the before we'll see the temple will be built. They clap their hands, they shout, they lift up their hands in worship. There's dancing, there's glorious fellowship. And the Gentiles, Psalm 117 1 says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, you're included, laud him, all you peoples. Even David, he even appoints Obed-Edom, that Gentile from Gath, where Goliath came from. He gets to be the doorkeeper of the new tabernacle. God loves this. This, after the coming of the Messiah King and the establishment of the new covenant in the future, that's what it's going to be like under the new covenant for his chosen people, the Jews. But here's a glimpse of it right now. Because soon enough, the temple will be built in Jerusalem, replacing the tabernacles of Moses and of David. And, and there in Jerusalem, in the temple, they will continue on for several more centuries in their priestly Jewish proper worship. But for this brief window, it's a picture of this joy and direct access and worship. So our two stories meet. And some things we can ponder in closing. What can be learned about how we respond to difficulties? Look at Michael. She had some real difficulties. She had a tough road, sent away, getting sent away from her first husband, years later being reclaimed, being moved like a chess piece. But she got embittered, hardened. And if anything, was too attached to this honor shame without the love of God there. And David... Saul also was mistreating him, tried to kill him. He was innocent. He was forced on the run for years, but he maintained his desire and his love for Jehovah. And notice the difference, how they went through difficulties. What can be learned about how men viewed women? Unfortunately, we see, again, they're just chess pieces to move. And as David and his son Solomon, surely the more the merrier mentality. Notice this isn't really treating them with honor at all. What can we learn about spontaneity? Boy, when you are uh, used to control and seeking control in your life, you will not like spontaneous things or spontaneous worship. The Spirit of God is not always predictable, and worship and joy and expression, it's not some cookie-cutter frame we have to mold into. If you are not in tune with the Lord, then you will turn against all such not-understood spontaneous things and be judgmental and critical. This isn't meeting our expectations or our standards. The standards are not ours, they're God's. And sometimes we don't understand them, but they're awesome. We don't want to have a mechanical or cold worship. And I want you to remember the picture of Michael in her window looking down and despising David in her heart and his joy and his leaping and so forth. So we'll refer back to that picture when we get to the prodigal son parable. What can we learn about worship? It stems from the heart. 
the desires of the heart. It involves the whole purpose and can include, can include singing and dancing and leaping and music and shouting. It's even emotional and it can be spontaneous. Do we instinctively put a damper on this? Are we the buzzkill sometimes? And finally, now in this age of grace, the church age that we're in, as we're not the Jews, we bring this over to our church age. What do we have? And I want to just end with two verses. In Hebrews 10, verse 19 and 20, Therefore, brethren, that's us, we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We have access, direct access to God. We never have to come through a priest. We are declared as believer priests and have access ourselves through Jesus Christ. And we then can have this worship and joy at any time. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, we have access all the time. We have this access that, that David was celebrating. That's going to come for the Jews at the time of the Messiah and the, and the time of the new covenant. We have it right now. And it's enough as we think of this access that we can come boldly into the throne of God. He welcomes us. He invites us. He wants us there. We don't have to cower in the corner like, you know, we're, because we're children. We, he invites us and loves us. So this is access enough to make us dance. Even lift your arms, perhaps shout. Don't let it get buzz-killed by someone else. Read it, believe it, rejoice in it. Give praise to God, and may you enjoy your access and relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this amazing and free access that we directly have if we're in Christ, if we're saved here today and have put our faith in Christ, who then clears the way and gives us access to you through him through his faith and what he's done for us in his resurrection. Thank you that we can directly come to your throne and we can do this through Christ. And we praise you and we shout out to you and we thank you and exalt you. May we celebrate you and teach us to relish this and enjoy this and to use this and to share this and to abide in this. And so we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for listening again, and until next time, remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.